Well, it's been a long day, and I want to um, welcome those of you who have just joined us for the Simon Lecture. I'm Roger Pilon, director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is your host institution today, and I want to also welcome those in the C-SPAN audience who may have just joined us for this Simon Lecture. Each year, um, we conclude our Constitution Day conference with the annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture, uh, named in honor of the late Ken Simon, a Pittsburgh engineer, entrepreneur, and industrialist who was a great friend of liberty and of the Cato Institute, and was devoted to furthering the thought of the American founders. This series has brought a distinguished group of judges, legal scholars, and practicing attorneys to the podium uh, to discuss enduring constitutional issues. Our first Simon lecture, for example, uh, was on constitutionalism, and it was given by Douglas H. Ginsburg, then the chief judge of the DC Circuit. Uh, since then, uh, the lectures have covered subjects ranging from property rights to religious liberty, the Ninth Amendment, progressivism, and more, including privacy, uh, the subject of last year's lecture by Alex Krasinski, chief judge of the Ninth Circuit. Uh, and that is the lead essay in the Cato Supreme uh, Court Review, which has just come out for those of you on the C-SPAN audience, and you can get simply by going to cato.org. Uh, next year, uh, we're going to have this year's Simon Lecture leading off our, uh, our issue. We begin the second decade of these lectures uh, with no less uh, distinguished a speaker. Uh, it is the Honorable Paul Clement, who's known in today's legal world as one of the most gifted practitioners to appear regularly before the Supreme Court. Um, the, uh, he's currently partner with Bancroft PLLC here in Washington, although his practice takes him far and wide. He served as the 43rd Solicitor General of the United States from June 2005 until June 2008. Prior to his confirmation as Solicitor General, he served as Acting Solicitor General for nearly a year and as Principal Deputy Solicitor General for over three years. His more than seven years of service in the office is the longest period of continuous service in the office by the Solicitor General since the 19th century. He's argued over 60 cases before the Supreme Court, including, of course, NFIB v. Sebelius, the case with which we began this conference today. Mr. Clement uh, received his bachelor's degree, summa cum laude, from Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and a master's degree in economics from Cambridge University. He graduated magna cum laude from Harvard Law School, where he was the Supreme Court editor of the Harvard Law Review. Following graduation, he clerked for Judge Lawrence H. Silverburn of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and for Associate Justice Antonin Scalia of the U.S. Supreme Court. He went on to serve as Chief Counsel for the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on the Constitution, Federalism, and Property Rights. His subject today is intriguingly entitled October Term 2011, A Constitutional Moment. Please welcome Paul Clement. Thank you, Roger, for that very kind introduction. It's, uh, it's great to be at the uh, Cato Institute. 
I've attended a number of these Simon lectures myself, so it's a real honor uh, to be here at the podium uh, presenting some thoughts on October term 2011, a constitutional moment. Uh, as, 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 as Roger alluded to, I had the distinct pleasure of arguing the, uh, the challenge to the Affordable Care Act on behalf of 26 states. Uh, just the very fact that 26 states combined uh, together in a challenge against a federal statute is a rather remarkable development, and the case itself was remarkable in almost every respect. And I want to talk principally uh, about that case and the court's decision of this case. Um, you know, certainly, I, I'm under no delusions uh, that there is really anything left to be said uh, about the health care case, since it has been uh, as analyzed as any case in recent memory. And that's really consistent with this entire case. Um, this case, I mean, I've been incredibly privileged to be involved in 60 Supreme Court cases that I argued, others that I briefed. Um, and there's really no case that I can remember that captured the public attention quite the way that the health care case and the health care challenge did. Um, I also think it's fair to say that the health care case had a rather unique arc. Uh, this is not a case. Sometimes there's, there's an act of, of Congress that's passed, and it's instantly identified as having a potential constitutional problem that's very promptly sort of brought up to the Supreme Court. One can think of, for example, another case I was involved in in my time in government, uh, the constitutional challenge to the McCain-Feingold Act. There was a case where the debate in Congress was largely a constitutional debate. It was largely a debate about the First Amendment. The opponents of the law opposed it largely on First Amendment grounds, and the case promptly made its way to the Supreme Court of the United States. By contrast, with the Affordable Care Act, there was certainly an incredibly healthy policy debate. Anybody who was in Washington uh, remembers the various uh, procedural maneuvering in order to get that statute passed, especially uh, after Scott Brown was elected in Massachusetts. And seemingly, the votes weren't there, but they managed to find them. Uh, but in that very rigorous uh, debate about the policy merits of the Affordable Care Act, there really was not a robust debate about its constitutionality. And that's something that really began in the, in the, in the waning days of the act and then was promptly followed by litigation that ensued. And when this litigation was first brought, uh, the reaction in many quarters was not just that the legislation was a bit of a long shot or the, lit the litigation was intriguing, but really that it was just frivolous, that it had no chance of success. Uh, Oren Kerr, who's a commentator on the Bullock conspiracy, among other places, um, and is you know, certainly uh, somebody who I think who looks at things very objectively, uh, initially gave the challengers a whopping 1% chance of success. Um, and I think compared to some things that other people said, that was generous. Um, and, and things really took a turn, though, and that's why I think the arc of this case is so interesting, uh, with, with Judge Hudson's opinion in Richmond, uh, striking the act down, and then Judge Vincent's decision down in Florida, striking the act down and principally focusing on the individual mandate. Judge Hudson struck down just the individual mandate. Judge Vincent struck down the individual mandate, and then also through severability analysis, struck down the balance of the statute. But in any event, those decisions by the district court were certainly a turning point. But I think it's fair to say that, at least in the popular press, the narrative at that point went from, well, this challenge is frivolous, to, well, this is ch a challenge that only a Republican appointee to the federal judiciary could love. 
uh, and people pointed out correctly that there was really a one-for-one -one correspondence between the party of the president that appointed a district court judge and how that district court judge resolved an Affordable Care Act challenge that was brought before them. A number of democratically appointed judges upheld the law, uh, and Judge Hudson and Judge Vincent, both Republican appointees, struck the individual mandate down. Things got even more complicated and interesting at the Court of Appeals level. Because at the Court of Appeals level, you had judges who were this, this easy narrative of all you need to know about a judge is what the party of the president who appointed them was, and you'll know how they're going to vote. That easy narrative broke down at the Court of Appeals level. Much attention, of course, was given to the fact that Judge Jeff Sutton of the Sixth Circuit voted to uphold the statute. Uh, Judge Silberman, at whom uh, Roger noted, I clerked for, um, and a tremendous uh, line of the conservative legal movement, but Judge Silberman also cast a vote to uphold the law. But by contrast, uh, Judge Hall, uh, down in the Eleventh Circuit, uh, voted to uh, strike down the law, and she was appointed by President Clinton. So this familiar pattern that people saw in the district court broke down in the Court of Appeals level. And then seemingly what should have been, I think, the, uh, the sort of the death knell of suggestions that this litigation was frivolous was the Supreme Court's action in taking the case. Not only did they take the case, which I don't think once the 11th Circuit voted to strike it down and there was a circuit split, I don't think it surprised anybody that the Supreme Court took this case for review. I think what did surprise people is the way the court handled the case. It divided the case into four separate arguments dedicated a full week of Supreme Court argument to this case, and ultimately dedicated six hours of argument time to the case, which it turned out proved not to be quite enough uh, because the court actually kept the advocates up there a little longer in discussing the spending power issues on the very last day. So when all was said and done, over six hours of argument uh, about this case, which is really unprecedented in the modern Supreme Court. As I said, I was involved in the McConnell against uh, the, the McCain-Feingold legislation, the McConnell litigation, and in that case, I remember in the government we were discussing amongst ourselves what would be the maximum amount of time that we could possibly ask the Supreme Court to dedicate to a single case, and we came up with four hours as being the most that one could plausibly ask for. And here, the Supreme Court, on its own motion, uh, granted ultimately six hours of argument time to this case. So truly a remarkable case. Now my own involvement in this case does not run from the beginning. I was not present at the creation. Um, I was brought in at the appellate level. And I'll say just as I think an interesting anecdote that I'll pick up on in a moment. I, I was actually asked about this case um, in a media interview before I had any involvement with it. I was on an NPR show with Walter Dellinger and Walter Dellinger was advancing what was then pretty much the dominant view of certainly uh, you know, people in legal academia, which was that the suit was in fact frivolous. Um, and I at that point had not studied the papers, um, but I had some basis for understanding the challenge that the government faced, because in my own time in the SG's office, I'd had the opportunity to defend acts of Congress against the argument that they exceeded Congress's enumerated powers. And what I said when I was first asked about it is, this will all come down to whether or not the government can articulate a limiting principle. If the government can articulate a limiting principle of why they can do this, why they can force people to buy insurance, but then not do, force people to buy anything they want, then they'll probably win. On the other hand, 
The challenge for the government in these cases is always to understand and be able to articulate why it is that if the government can do this, it doesn't mean the end of judicially enforceable limits on the commerce power. Um, and so without having dug into the case, but again, having worn uh, the, the, played the role of a government lawyer, I knew that the limiting principle would be important. Well, as I mentioned, this case ultimately gets to the Supreme Court of the United States, and they divide it into four separate arguments. But especially in light of the opinions that have emerged, I think it's really fair to say that there are six separate issues that the Supreme Court dealt with in this case. The first, and far and away the least interesting, uh, was the issue of the Anti-Injunction Act. But this was a question that really went to whether the court had jurisdiction to hear the case. <clears throat> the Fourth Circuit uh, down in Richmond had relied on the Anti-Injunction Act in order to decide that they would not reach the merits of the challenge. And so this was certainly an argument about the court's jurisdiction that they had to take seriously. They dedicated the first day of argument to the question, and they ultimately decided unanimously that they did, in fact, have jurisdiction. The one interesting thing about the court's reasoning on the Anti-Injunction Act, of course, is that for purposes of the Anti-Injunction Act, the fact that Congress labeled the individual mandate a penalty and not a tax was pretty much outcome determinative. The court said that for purposes of the Anti-Injunction Act, we take Congress at its word. If they don't call it a tax, then they don't qualify for the special rules of jurisdiction that say that if you want to challenge a tax, you can't just go into court and say, I don't like the tax. You have to pay the tax, seek a refund, and through the refund process, mount your challenge to the law. So the court disposed of the Anti-Injunction Act issue unanimously. Now then we get to what really, I think, in terms of the court's argument schedule, was just one issue, which is the constitutionality of the individual mandate. But in reality, it's three separate issues. Whether the individual mandate is justified under the commerce power, whether it is justified under the necessary and proper power of the Constitution, and whether or not it can be justified under the taxing power. Now, in thinking about the burdens on the challengers, I think it's worth focusing on the fact that there, these are three issues, and the government only needed to prevail on one of these issues. These are three separate arguments for why the federal government had the power to pass this statute. And so, if you think back to Orrin Kerr's statement that there was only a 1% chance of prevailing, I mean, part of the challenge for those attacking the statute was they really did have to run the table on these arguments. And to make matters even more difficult, I think it was conventional wisdom, and a part of conventional wisdom that did not turn out to be wrong, uh, that there were four votes on the court ready to uphold the law on any one of these grounds. And so what that meant in practical terms is that in order to prevail, the challengers really needed to run the table and on these three issues get 15 out of 15 available votes. Now the good news is that the challengers managed the quite remarkable feat of getting 14 out of 15 votes. <laughs> Bad news, of course, is that 14 out of 15 doesn't get you a majority opinion striking down the law um, on, on these grounds. But I actually think and you may think this is hyper, hyperbole, or you may think this is somebody who is trying to spin a litigation defeat. But I think it is actually fair to say that the Supreme Court, in its decision, struck down the individual mandate, the mandate that each and every individual purchase insurance. The Supreme Court struck that down as unconstitutional. 
because it said that Congress lacked the power under the commerce power or the necessary and proper power to impose a mandate to purchase insurance. Of course, it said that the statute was valid under the taxing power, but it only did that by recharacterizing the statute as not a mandate to purchase insurance, but as a tax on the status of not having insurance. And so construed, they upheld it as a valid exercise of the taxing power. But I think it's worth recognizing that that is a different statute from the statute that Congress actually passed, and it has different practical effects. I think most law-abiding citizens, if they're told that there is a constitutionally valid mandate to purchase insurance, will purchase insurance. I think most people, if told that they have to pay a tax if they don't purchase insurance, will want to know how much is the tax and how much does the insurance cost. And then they will make a rational decision about whether to purchase health insurance. And some people will purchase insurance and some people will choose to pay the tax. And the practical consequence, I believe, is that the number of individuals who will remain uninsured will be higher under a regime that simply taxes the status of being uninsured relative to an actual individual mandate that everyone must purchase insurance. Now, as I say, I'm, I'm receptive to the charge that maybe this is some spin. So don't take my word for it. Take the Chief Justice's word for it, in the sense that the taxing power law that was approved here really is different, fundamentally different, from the individual mandate. So quoting from the Chief Justice's opinion, he sets up his basic argument about the taxing power as follows, quote, the government's tax power argument asks us to view the statute differently than we did in considering its commerce power theory. In making its commerce clause argument, the government defended the mandate as a regulation requiring individuals to purchase health care insurance. The government does not claim that the taxing power allows Congress to issue such a command. Instead, the government asks us to read the mandate not as ordering individuals to buy insurance, but rather as imposing a tax on those who do not buy the product. And just to be more clear, he continues later in the opinion, quote, under the tax theory, the mandate is not a legal command to buy insurance. Instead, it is, quote, just a tax hike on certain taxpayers who do not have health insurance. Now, many of you may think to yourself, well, okay, but that's certainly, at a minimum, not the most straightforward reading of the statute that Congress passed. Well, here again, the Chief Justice agrees with you. To quote, the most straightforward reading of the mandate is that it commands individuals to purchase insurance. But the Chief Justice pointedly did not embrace, for purposes of the taxing power, the most straightforward reading of the statute. And to the contrary, he made a, a, a point of making clear that his reading of the taxing power version of the statute was not the, the most natural or straightforward reading of the statute. And he made that in response to Justice Ginsburg. Because Justice Ginsburg wrote an opinion that made a, what I think is, at least on the surface, a fair point. She says to the Chief Justice, look, if you're going to uphold the statute on the taxing power, why have you issued an opinion that goes out of your way to say that Congress lacks the power under the commerce power and the necessary and proper power? That, as a matter of judicial minimalism, seems gratuitous. You, if you're going to uphold the statute on the taxing power, that ought to be the only issue that you address. And he specifically responds to Justice Ginsburg by saying, quote, the statute reads more naturally 
as a command to buy insurance than as a tax. And I would uphold it as a command if the Constitution allowed it. But of course, the Chief Justice held that the Constitution did not allow that. Now, just to be one final note of clarity here, at the end of his opinion, the Chief Justice makes this distinction about as clear as I think one could. He writes, quote, the federal government does not have the power to order people to buy health insurance, end quote, full sentence. Two sentences later, the federal government does have the power to impose a tax on those without health insurance. Now, so I do think, again, to, 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 to emphasize this point, that the Chief Justice's own analysis makes clear that the statute that emerges is not the individual mandate. The Supreme Court, despite what you read in the papers, did not say that it was constitutional to impose a mandate on individuals to purchase a product that they wouldn't otherwise want. The Supreme Court simply and only upheld the power of the federal government to impose a tax on those who do not have health insurance. And just to underscore the notion that that really is quite different from the statute that Congress passed, I mean, remember, the point of the health care law was to get people who did not have insurance and enable them to get insurance. It was not an effort to tax those people that did not have health insurance. But that ends up being the law that gets upheld in the end by the court. Now, if I could add one word of note about the taxing power, which is this analysis that there is the power to levy a tax on those that do not have insurance cannot be the end of the analysis, and the Chief Justice acknowledges as much. He says that, of course, the Constitution uh, imposes limits on the ability of the federal Congress to impose a direct tax on people without apportioning that among the states. And you can think about that as a limitation on the taxing power, but it's very much also a federalism provision because the idea the framers had was the power to impose a direct tax was a very powerful authority to grant the federal government, and it had the potential to be done in a way that had favoritism among the states, which of course was one of the principal concerns of the founding generations. The people who went to the Constitutional Convention from their individual states were very concerned not to give the populous states, the power to overwhelm the less populous states and the like. And so the apportionment principle is an important federalism principle and limit on the taxing power. And so the Chief Justice had to confront the question of whether or not this tax was an impermissible direct tax because it clearly was not apportioned. And my last quote from the Chief Justice's opinion, he holds on this point that a tax on going without, without health insurance does not fall within any recognized category of a direct tax. Now, I have to say, I think that is an issue where the Supreme Court may have benefited from more extensive briefing. Because if you go back to the commerce power argument, in the commerce power argument, the fact that Congress had never done this before, that for 200 years, Congress had every incentive to impose mandates on people to solve social problems, but they never used that authority in over 200 years. That was viewed as one of the challenger's most powerful arguments. But then when it comes to the taxing power, the fact that this tax doesn't come within any recognized category of direct tax or indirect tax uh, is seen as the key to why it's not an impermissible direct tax. The other part of the analysis that the court focused on here, or the Chief Justice in particular focused on, 
was the fact that in the framing generation, uh, there was a tax on carriages, a tax on owning, the, owning a carriage. And that issue actually divided the framers. Madison thought that was an impermissible direct tax. Hamilton thought it was a permissible indirect tax. Um, and the issue made it to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court sided with Hamilton. But the problem is, as the chief's own analysis makes clear, this isn't a tax on buying health insurance. This is a tax on not having health insurance. So the analogy is not a tax on having a carriage. It's a tax on not having a carriage. And I think it is hard to understand how the framers would have thought those two were the same thing. And indeed, if you look at the court's analysis back in that carriage case, Hilton, they say that the reason a tax on carriages is not a direct tax on you as an individual is because it's effectively a tax on purchasing a carriage. But that same reasoning suggests that a tax on not having something, be it a carriage or health insurance, is indeed a direct tax that operates directly on the individual. Well, I promised you six issues. I've only got to four so far. So let me talk about what I think of as, in some respects, the sleeper issue in the case, and that is the spending power issue. The Supreme Court here, by a seven to two majority, put a limit on the spending power of Congress, and in indeed struck down part of the Affordable Care Act as unconstitutional because it impermissibly coerced the states to, to, to participate in the Medicaid program. And it did this specifically by telling the states that even though you've been participating in Medicaid for 30, 40 years, and we give you reimbursement formulas for your past participation at past levels, you need to take new money and cover vastly expanded universe of Medicaid patients. And if you don't agree to take the money, not only will you not get the money for the new patients, but we're going to take away the entire funding stream you had that you've always relied on for your past Medicaid contributions. And it was that effort essentially to leverage the state's past participation in the program and use it as a way to force the states to accept the new money, even if they didn't want the new money with the new conditions that attracted seven votes for the proposition that that was an excess of the spending power. The Supreme Court, in doing so, recognizes, I think, the importance of one of the key values of federalism, and that is accountability. And the court, the court says, permitting the federal government to force states to implement a federal program would threaten the political accountability key to our federal system. The notion is that if the states are forced to take this money, then one has no way of knowing really who to, who to complain to. If you don't like the way the Medicaid program is being administered, well, and it's being administered by the states, you know, you'd naturally complain to the states. But if they have no choice but to participate, that's a fundamental accountability problem. And the courts saw that. They also, as I said, focused on the key at being the link to the existing funding streams and used that as the basis for finding the statute unconstitutional. And as I say, in some of the coverage of the case, the spending power issue sort of got uh, swept aside and largely ignored. But there's no mistaking the court's conclusion that there was a constitutional violation. The court, the court says, quote, we determined that section 1396C, which is the part that allows the secretary to take away all the funding, including the pre-existing funding, is unconstitutional when applied to withdrawing existing Medicaid funds from states that decline to comply with the expansion. Now, the sixth issue is the severability issue. 
Because the court only struck down the one provision of the Medicaid provision, the court did not tarry long over the severability issue. But it is noteworthy that four justices stood ready not just to strike down the individual mandate, not just ready to strike down the Medicaid expansion, but to strike down the statute in its entirety. And I think that it is, as I say, quite remarkable that the challengers came within that one vote on that one issue to invalidating the statute as a whole. But I'm not here to talk about coulda, woulda, shoulda. I do want to talk a little bit about whether we did have a constitutional moment. And also, I do want to focus for a second, though, on the practical consequences of the way the court decided this case. Because my own view is that this decision that emerges is not either as a practical matter or as a theoretical matter fungible with a decision that simply said that all of this is fine under both the commerce power and the spending power, and there's nothing unconstitutional here at all. Now, one of the points I've already alluded to, which is I do think as a practical matter of how many people will remain uninsured, the difference between a tax and a mandate is significant. Time will tell. I can't have the empirical data as I stand here now. But I do think that more people, I mean, this is a law-abiding nation, I think more people would have complied with the mandate than will now make what the Chief Justice tells them is their choice to make as to whether or not it's economically rational for them to decide not to purchase health insurance and pay the tax. And, I promise, and one last quote from the Chief Justice. He observes, quote, it may often be a reasonable financial decision to make the payment rather than purchase insurance. So he himself envisioned that this difference could matter. The other thing, though, that matters, and I think could matter a great deal, is the fact that states now have an opt-out right under the Medicaid expansion. And uh, you know, based on an article I saw this morning in the Wall Street Journal, Six states have already decided to opt out of the Medicaid expansion, and others are considering following that same path. And the more states that opt out of the Medicaid expansion, the more individuals that Congress intended to have covered will remain uncovered. And I think the combined effect of those two effects, the one being the difference between a tax and a mandate, the other being the uninsured in states that decline the Medicaid expansion fund, will mean that there are substantially less people who were uninsured who will be covered under the law than Congress envisioned. And that fact alone may, over time, cause Congress to have to revisit this issue. And I do think the more states that opt out of the Medicaid expansion, the more of a natural constituency there will be in Congress to reconsider uh, this expansion. Because the states that have decided not to participate have made a very difficult choice. Their taxpayers in their states are still going to be taxed to fund the Medicaid expansion in other states. And so that is a situation where they've made a tough decision, and I think there will be a natural constituency potentially to reconsider this, the, the health care law, whether that's wholesale or retail. I think that's a force that has to be reckoned with. I also think that there are important jurisprudential consequences to the way the court decided this case. And I know there's been a healthy debate about sort of whether the, the, the glass here is half full or half empty. And I really don't mean to enter that debate. I, I simply mean to objectively say that I do think there are significant differences about the way they decided this case from the way they could have decided this case. And I think I've already talked about the practical consequences, but I want to talk about the jurisprudential consequences as well. 
start with the idea that the stakes in this case were so enormous, not because it was the president's signature legislative achievement and the constitutionality and the validity of it was up in an election year. I mean, I have no delusions that that is what attracted a great deal of the media attention to the case and what gave it sort of almost a life of its own. But what makes the case so important is that federalism is at the heart of our Constitution. Um, and I'll quote Justice Kennedy on this. Um, he, said, he said in his Lopez concurrence, quote, federalism was the unique contribution of the framers to political science and political theory. And here he quotes a great judge, Henry Friendly, and a great historian, Gordon Wood. And then he continues, though on the surface the idea may seem counterintuitive, it was the insight of the framers that freedom was enhanced by the creation of two governments, not one. So, you know, separation of powers is great, but we really do have that. We borrowed that from some other countries. Federalism really was the unique contribution. And I think it's fair to say that it was a major theme of the Rehnquist Court. That one of the major accomplishments for Chief Justice Rehnquist was to reignite the federalism instinct and the limits on the federal government. But I think it's also fair to say that many people looked at the Rehnquist Court and its federalism cases and felt that in the end, the court was kind of running out of steam. Um, that, you know, that the court decided Lopez, the court decided Morrison, but then, and some may blame me, the court decided the Raich case, which I argued on behalf of the federal government, and the court said that the, uh, the, the, the prohibition there, the national prohibition um, on marijuana extended all the way to the possession of medical marijuana, um, even though California had made it legal. So there was this sense that federalism was very important, but was kind of losing steam. It was also, I think, important to recognize that the two appointments of President George W. Bush um, had very different backgrounds from the justices that they replaced. And based on those backgrounds, I think it was fair to question whether those justices would have the same innate dedication to federalism principles as the justices they replaced. I mean, Justice O'Connor most obviously, but Chief Justice Rehnquist as well, I mean, they cut their teeth in the state systems. They had substantial backgrounds practicing in state courts or being on the state courts themselves. And with respect to the Chief Justice and Justice Alito, although they had wonderful backgrounds, their backgrounds were in the federal government. And so there was reason to wonder when they were appointed uh, that, you know, sure, based on their service in the executive branch, they would probably understand separation of powers principles instinctively. But it's hard to know where they would be on federalism principles. And perhaps because of that, there were certainly some bold predictions in this case that this was not going to be a close case. I talked about sort of the arc of this case, but I think it's worth recognizing that even on the eve of argument, there was a substantial body of opinion that suggested that this decision was going to be 8-1 or 7-2 uh, in favor of the statute against the challengers. And that wasn't just in the abstract, uh, you know, it was specific as to the Commerce Clause in particular. And I'll pick one example, but it's only one of many. And Linda Greenhouse wrote a story, a, a, a piece called Never Before. And I'll, I'll give you one paragraph, which I think gives you a flavor for the piece. She argued, quote, free of convention, and the convention she refers to is trying to be even-handed about the merits of two sides of the case, and fresh from reading the main briefs in the case to be argued before the Supreme Court next week, I am here to tell you that the belief that the sides are equally, met, that the equally balanced here is simply wrong. 
the constitutional challenge to the law's requirement for people to buy health insurance, specifically the argument that the mandate exceeds Congress's power under the Commerce Clause, is rhetorically powerful, but analytically so weak that it dissolves upon close inspection. There's just no there there. Indeed, in the run-up to the argument, there was even a rather strong body of opinion that perceived even Justice Scalia's vote to be in play, based on his concurrence in the Raich case. Now, my point here is not to call out any of those uh, who predicted the outcome in this case incorrectly, because as far as I know, everybody predicted the outcome in this case incorrectly. If you show me the person who said it was all going to come down to the Chief Justice's vote on the taxing power, I'd like to meet that person. Uh, my point, though, is not to pick out people and say, well, you missed the boat on this. My point is that there was a responsible body of opinion, even on the eve of argument, that the commerce power and certainly the spending power challenges were not just somehow narrowly wrong or just off, but were simply frivolous arguments. Um, the always quotable Walter Dellinger, my friend, made this point on the very eve of argument in Politico. He said, you know how they, I think being defend uh, challengers of the law, you know how they say people were saying it's frivolous and they're not saying that anymore? Walter Dellinger said, in an, asked in an interview, well, I'm still saying it's frivolous <laughs> on the eve of argument, after six hours of argument were granted. But nonetheless, that opinion was out there. And I think the real point that I'd like to make today is that if those prognosticators, if that substantial body of opinion that said that this was going to be an 8-1, a 7-2 landslide were correct, then we really would have a constitutional moment on our hands. We really would see the death of any meaningful effort by the Supreme Court to enforce the enumerated power limits on the federal government and to enforce the basic federal balance. And I think that really would have been quite remarkable because we have seen, I mean, certainly since the Rehnquist Court, but really if you take a broad view throughout our constitutional history, there's been a long effort, a long struggle to enforce meaningful limits on the Commerce Clause. I think every one of the justices at some level will concede that the Commerce power is fairly broad. I also think that all nine justices recognize that there have to be limits on the commerce power. Otherwise, the whole point of enumerating the various powers of Congress was entirely beside the point. They could have said the commerce power, QED, we're done. And, and now I think some of the justices may question what role there is for the judiciary to enforce the commerce power limits. But I think what happened in this case is that five justices did adopt what has been at least the dominant view since the Lopez decision, which is that the court can simply not get out of the business of enforcing limits on fe federalism limits on the power of the federal government. And here, too, I will quote uh, Justice Kennedy from his Lopez concurrence. As he said then, the federal balance is too essential a part of our constitutional structure and plays too vital a role in securing freedom for us to admit an inability to intervene when one or the other level of government has tipped the scales too far. And I think he also recognized that this is not an area where there are strong institutional incentives for Congress to police itself in exercising its power. And so the court has to play a role, even if the lines are somehow sometimes difficult to articulate and seem somehow sometimes difficult to enforce in practice. 
And importantly, I think, particularly at the Cato Institute of all places, it's important to recognize that Justice Kennedy there, just as he did in the Bond opinion two terms ago, really underscored that federalism isn't there just to protect the states. It's there as a fundamental protector of individual liberty, informed by the idea that the, that the levels of government closer to the people are much more likely to be respective of the people's liberty. Now, before I finish, I do have to, in deference to the academic nature of this lecture, consider an objection uh, to this, this theory that there was a constitutional moment essentially averted. And that is, well, what about the tax power? I mean, if, you know, you, you know, it's all well and good that there are enforceable limits on the spending power, and it's all well and good that there are enforceable limits on the commerce power, and there are enforceable limits on the necessary and proper power, but what about the tax power? I think there are ways, though, that the tax power is different enough from these other powers that it is still, I think, significant that the court decided what it decided on the commerce power and the necessary and proper power. I think it's different practically. I've already talked about the fact that with a tax, you have different practical outcomes than with an actual individual mandate that Congress intended. It's also different on a more theoretical level, and the Chief Justice made this point. I mean, the power under the commerce power, if you have the power, it's not just that you can impose a penalty. You can impose criminal sanctions. You could do anything you want to enforce the mandate if, if indeed, was within the commerce power. On the taxing power, on the other hand, there is only the power to impose a tax. And indeed, the Chief Justice went out of his way to say that at some point, a tax would become too prohibitively high that it would essentially be, amount to the same thing as an impermissible commerce regulation. So I think it's actually important that for many taxpayers, they had a real option to pay the tax instead of buying the premium. I think if for every individual, the premium and the tax were the same amount, it would raise a different and more difficult question. But the last thing, and I think this is important, is they are different structurally. As I just said, I don't really think there is much in the structure of Congress and the way it gets elected for it to be a logical protector or a logical governor switch on the commerce power. I mean, they're the federal government, and they have an instinct that if there is an outrage about something, uh, it must be that there needs to be a federal law to address it. I mean, that's their natural instinct. I think it is different with the taxing power. I think it is very difficult to raise new taxes for a reason. Taxes are politically very unpopular. And I think, indeed, I think it's fairly obvious for those that were around at the time that the health care law passed that if it had been labeled a tax in the first instance, uh, it very well would not have passed. There was no appetite for increasing taxes. And one of the attractive features of the individual mandate is it operated like a tax, a tax on relatively healthy, relatively young individuals who were forced to buy something they didn't need but could contribute to uh, the risk pool. Uh, but it wasn't labeled a tax. And I think that in the future, if it remains clear that the only way that you can have something like an individual mandate is if it is a tax, I think it will be much more difficult politically to pass an individual mandate or a tax that is similar to an individual mandate in the future. Now, it does prompt the question, why did Congress essentially get one free pass in the Affordable Care Act? And why didn't those same structural considerations cause the court to insist that if Congress wasn't willing to call it a tax, it shouldn't get the benefit of the tax power? But that's a question the court didn't directly answer. Let me also say before sitting down that the spending power 
I think is also critical and should not be overlooked. I mean, I think that it would have been hard enough for anyone to predict that the, that the Chief Justice would be the deciding vote on the taxing power. I'm not sure anybody would have told you that the states were going to get seven votes on their spending power argument. But indeed, they did. And I think it's very important for two reasons. One is, there's a real difference between the spending power argument and the commerce power argument. If the federal government can't articulate a limit on the commerce power, then the federal government typically loses. Now, the challenge for the states in this case was to articulate a limit on the spending power. You know, what is the articulable limit on the spending power? At what point does the inducement of money become too coercive? But there's an important difference, which is if the government can't articulate a limit on the commerce power, then it calls into question the whole process of enumeration, all the limits on the federal power. If the courts can't articulate a meaningful limit on the spending power about when the spending power becomes coercive, the logical consequence of that is not that, well, then anything goes. The logical consequence of that is to reconsider the spending power even more fundamentally. Because remember, under the spending power and why the spending power is so dangerous, Congress can tell the states to do things or induce the states to do things that it couldn't direct them to do directly. The great example is the Dole case where Congress gave states money in order to change their drinking age, even though everyone knew that Congress couldn't directly order them to change their drinking age. But of course, after the Prince case, there are lots of things that the federal government can't simply order the states to do. They can't simply commandeer them to have an entire structure to administer the Medicaid program. They have to have an inducement to do that. And if there's no way to tell when the line between inducement and coercion uh, is enforceable, then the logical consequence is to say that Congress can't do things under the spending power if, if it's, in, in, unless it can also do them directly. And so I think it was very important to the constitutional structure that the court articulated that limit. And the last way in which it is important is in the sense that there's now this precedent out there. You know, I, I can tell you from firsthand, it's hard to argue a spending power argument, make a spending power argument, when the only thing you have to cite is dictum from Dole. But when you have an actual holding of the Supreme Court, I mean, and certainly there's going to be much discussion about how it's distinguishable, and the very sui generis nature of Medicaid will, will lend itself to arguments that it's distinguishable. But there is now a precedent of the Supreme Court that says that at a certain point, an inducement to the states to participate in a program is simply too coercive to be constitutional. And I think that is quite significant. So to sum up, I really don't think we had a constitutional moment in October term 2011, but we almost did. And certainly, if those that had predicted an 8-1 landslide for the government in this case were right, then we would have had a very significant constitutional moment indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. We've got time for a few quick questions and quick answers before we have our reception. If you could raise your hand and identify yourself and any affiliation you may have, that would be good. Let's start uh, right here with Manny, since the microphone is there. Manny Klausner of the Reason Foundation and the Individual Rights Foundation. Paul, would you be, uh, would you care to uh, comment or speculate upon the question was there a different vote 
during conference that was switched by the Chief Justice? And if so, what do you think led to that? Well, man, it's great to see you. And, uh, you know, I, I, I will be happy to give a very limited comment on that, which is I, I have no way of, you know, I have no special sources on the inside. Uh, I am, you know, I'm a big believer that uh, efforts to try to parse footnotes and opinions and figure out whether a reference to some earlier opinion was really a reference to a prior majority. I mean, I think all of that is really uh, not time well spent. Um, what I can say, though, is that it was not apparent from the argument that the taxing power was a chief focus of the chief justice or really of any other justice. And I think from the standpoint of an advocate, you know, that's always something that is unfortunate because there was much discussion of the commerce power. Uh, there was much discussion of the necessary and proper power. And, you know, there was really maybe a minute or two um, on the taxing power. And from that, I think it's a fair inference that uh, the taxing power argument took on greater significance uh, as the case went through its internal deliberations than was the case at the time of argument. Professor Blumstein. Jim Blumstein, Vanderbilt Law School. Uh, this morning I spoke about the Medicaid issue on the panel, on the first panel, and I gave uh, equal weight to the uh, uh, coercion argument and to the notice, clear notice argument. I uh, noticed that the notice argument uh, was not part of your presentation, and so I would just like to get you to comment on that part of the case as well. No, I mean, I do think that, that, that both parts of the opinion are important. I guess what I would say is that um, there's certainly um, it's probably an easier task for the litigant to cite to court cases that already impose some kind of clear notice requirement before this case. And so to me, what is the, what is the aspect of this decision that's a real game changer um, is the fact that we now have something more than dictum to cite when it comes to uh, the coercion point. But I certainly don't mean... Uh, to gainsay the significance that the court has made clear uh, that, uh, you know, there is, that notice remains a very important principle. And I think it's probably fair to say that the notice aspect of the case um, will be harder to distinguish. I think, as I said, I mean, I do think this is very important to have a precedent to build on. And I do think there are aspects of how they wrote the opinion that, you know, do have analogs on other federal programs or certainly other efforts to expand federal programs. So I don't think that the government will ultimately be successful in cabining this case on the coercion point only to Medicaid. Uh, but the notice point is going to be litigated in virtually every spending power case. And so to have another precedent uh, that's a very helpful precedent on that point I think is quite significant. There's a question right up there. The I'm Larry Tidrick. I'm non-affiliated. Um, the question is, do you think there's anything that you could have added somewhere along the line in the argument that would have been in Robert's head that would have come to, to, to have him come with a different decision? Well, I guess what I would say is, you know, you can now is, you know, think back and with the benefit of this opinion, say, well, you know, if only I'd started my argument with the taxing power. Um, but on the other hand, you know, if, if, if I'd done that, I think my clients would have probably immediately fired me because I just don't, I don't you know, I don't think that, that, that people saw that. I mean, you know, it's not the way that the lower courts 
that had upheld the law had they had not relied on that theory. Uh, it did not, you know, it was there. There was some briefing on it. So I, I guess what I would say in answer to your question is, you know, I guess the one thing that you know I might, I, you know, I, I, in a perfect world, I think if the taxing power issue took on such additional significance, you know, after argument, I think there was a real argument. And this was suggested by the dissenters that what the court should have done is held the case over and asked for separate briefing on the taxing power question and the very important question about whether or not it's an impermissible direct tax. And, you know, obviously that's something the court's done. Um, you know, I filed two briefs in the Kia Bell case, and I think the Kia Bell case is incredibly important about the scope of the alien tort statute. But if I had to choose, um, I think I would have said that the Affordable Care Act was even more important so if they were going to hold one case over for additional argument on a separate issue, I guess I, if, if, if I could have voted, I would have said, why don't you do it in that one and really get to the bottom of this taxing power issue? Because I do think it's a much more important issue than people give it credit for. You know, again, it's very easy to think of the taxing power as simply being an enumerated power of Congress. But if you really read the debates in the framing era, it becomes very clear that the apportionment requirement on the direct on the direct taxing power was a central federalism provision. And, you know, it really was the idea that, you know, the, the federal government is not just going to be able to uh, essentially go around the states uh, on direct taxes, but they're going to have to either have the states do it or they're going to have to be apportioned, the you know, w among the states. And, you know, I mean, wh whatever your views about the 16th Amendment, which overcame a Supreme Court decision uh, limiting the federal government's ability to impose a direct tax on income. I mean, you know, the 16th Amendment has certainly been, a, you know, had a remarkable effect on the balance between the federal governments and the state governments. And I, I say that just to illustrate how central the direct tax question is to our basic constitutional structure. Paul, well, can I uh, follow up on this taxing issue? You have said that this was not a constitutional moment because there is an articulable limit on the commerce power. But how is that any different from uh, saying that there is no articulable limit on the taxing power other than, other than when it becomes coercive, which of course is no principle at all, um, other than it's a vague, very vague. If you can do the same thing, once again, under the taxing power that you can do or could do under the commerce power. We still have essentially an unlimited power, don't we? Except well, for the coercive aspect. No, and, 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 and I think, you know, if, if, if there's a weakness in my, in, in my submission, that's the weakness. Now, I think the, the way I respond I to it. I found it, yes. No, but the, but the way I, but, I but, but I think it's not without a response. And I think the response is that, you know, there are differences and I think they're practical, I think they're theoretical, and I think they're structural. The practical, uh, I, I fully grant the practical, right. the political. It's the constitutional that concerns me. Well, and, 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 I, th and I will say, you know, I, I, I will address it, but I do think that, the, that what, I, what I would call the structural difference, which is the extent to which Congress can actually be expected to play a role in limiting taxation. Um, I think that's awfully significant, so I don't want to just sort of pass over that because, as I said, I mean, you know, I think having, expecting Congress to impose self-restraint with its commerce power um, is kind of like, you know, asking the proverbial fox to guard the hen house. 
I think, you know, with taxing, it's different. And the reason it's different is because nothing excites the populace more than the idea that they're going to raise taxes. And so I do think that, you know, there is, in a way that I don't know that there will ever be a working sort of majority in Congress to exercise self-restraint with the commerce power. I think it is, you know, we probably right now do have um, a working majority to not impose new taxes, um, certainly in the House. So, so, I, so I do think that that difference is important. The theoretical difference, though, um, is that once you have the commerce power, then you can do anything to essentially enforce the mandate to purchase insurance. So you could make it a condition of entering, getting any federal license. You could make it, you know, you could make it, having in, in health insurance could be, uh, you know, a condition for getting uh, a, a student loan, anything like that. But it also, they also could impose substantial additional penalties. They could, as the Chief Justice said, in theory, they could jail you. And, you know, because once Congress can legislate under the commerce power, um, it's not limited to just imposing tax-like exactions. We're under the taxing power. It, you know, that's what they get to do. And, and the limit, which I think, you know, is, 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 is real and I think would be enforceable, is, you know, the one thing they couldn't do, which I think for some taxpayers they come close to doing, is saying that, look, you have a choice. Your choice is to either buy health insurance or pay a tax in the amount of your premium. I think the Chief Justice's opinion suggests that Congress could not do that, but we, but we may need a case to, to litigate, and I'm ready. Um. <laughs> uh, right back there in the, in the middle of the uh, row. Hi, uh, Derek McMahon from William & Mary. I just want to say I find very persuasive all of the things that you're saying, but I'd like to play devil's advocate against a single point, and that is the contended impropriety of treating um, the Affordable Care Act tax um, as an indirect permissible tax by analogy to Hamilton's carriage tax. There's an economic rationale which says that activities that create negative externalities merit intervention. So I guess, for example, an 18th century carriage would do more damage to roads than an average pedestrian. So you impose a tax that forces the carriage owner to internalize the costs and raises revenue for the government to remedy the problem. And I can see the appeal of treating the mandate more as or more like um, a tax on people not buying carriages. But I think it's important to remember that not owning a carriage doesn't create uh, externalities, doesn't impose costs on society while not buying health insurance does. So I just want to know, like, what is the fundamental difference between action and inaction? Because if it's just a limiting principle, again, in the name of devil's advocacy, I can imagine conjuring one. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I took a year of economics before I went to law school. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm just not sure, you know, that I couldn't take issue with the premise that, you know, I, I think you could ascribe some externalities to almost any inaction. Um, and I think, you know, if, if, if people use their carriages to give people rides gratuitously in the framing era, um, then not having a carriage is kind of selfish, um, and you're imposing costs on other people, and it all, all of a sudden looks an awful lot like, uh, you know, not having health insurance. So I, I guess what I, you know, one, one way of sort of wrestling with that, with that objection is that I'm just not sure that, you know, that, that, 
that even, first of all, I'm not sure there's really a clean distinction. I mean, I think most actions and most inactions have some externalities. I also think that it's not clear to me that the inaction-action distinction isn't actually a pretty good proxy for the direct tax. I mean, whatever, you know, economic sense it may, it may be, but the relevant question doctrinally is whether it's a direct or an indirect tax. And I do think it's much easier to articulate a tax on a carriage as being essentially not a tax on you, it's a tax on your purchase of a carriage. And I think it becomes much harder to make that argument for the uh, tax on not having a carriage, theoretical tax. But here's the last point, which is you can quibble, um, and, and, and heaven knows the government and others that you know, I've debated about this have, about you know, the inaction-action distinction. You know, I'm personally you know, am not that fond of that way of thinking about it because I think ultimately there's more of a textual argument that Congress can regulate commerce and forcing somebody to engage in commerce is not the regulation of commerce. But nonetheless, um, and, and I actually think that there's probably the action-inaction distinction probably maps on more closely to the direct-indirect tax framework than it does to the commerce power. But the last thing I got to say about this is if there's one person who embraced the action-inaction distinction in his Commerce Clause opinion, it was the Chief Justice. And so to embrace that distinction for purposes of the commerce power, but then to turn around um, and basically say, as he did in a critical passage, that a tax on not having insurance is no different from a tax on gasoline, um, I think makes a very important jump, which is, well, wait a second. You just said that all those other Commerce Clause cases were distinguishable because Congress was regulating action. And I know a lot of taxes on gas, you know, on, on gases and excise taxes on all sorts of things. I just am not that familiar with being taxed for not doing something. And so I do think that ultimately that is, I mean, despite a very fair point as a devil's advocate, it's still a weakness uh, in the taxing analysis that emerges as the majority opinion. We're going to take one last question from Manny on a point that is directly on point. Go ahead, Manny. Uh, thank you. Uh, Paul, uh, PLF recently filed a uh, motion in, in its case, which is still pending on the ACA, about the impropriety of using the tax power because the, the bill in this case didn't really originate in the House, and so it violates the origination clause. And I was wondering if we can comment on that argument. You know, I haven't studied that issue, so I, I don't really want to comment on it because, I, I, you know, I don't want to sort of, you know, certainly cast any negative aspersions on, on an issue uh, that I haven't studied. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the Constitution has a number of structural provisions that are designed to put checks on the taxing power, which, you know, Chief Justice Marshall, as you know, recognized from the get-go that, you know, the power to tax is the power to destroy. And one of those checks is the origination clause, which says, essentially that taxing legislation has to originate in the most populous house, i.e. the House of Representatives. So there certainly is that limit on, uh, on, the, uh, on the taxing power. I just haven't studied how it sort of maps on. If NPR asked the question, would you respond? What's that? If NPR had asked the question, would you respond? Well, you still need a limiting principle. <laughs> <laughs> well, Manny, the way the Congress gets around it, as I understand it, is that the bill originates in the House, and then it goes over to the Senate. The Senate strips everything from the bill except the H, and then fills in the content. 
and then it goes back to the House. The sham exemption. Of course, the issue here is that the bill orig originated in the Supreme Court. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and of course, that's what we call your Congress at work. Uh, all right, listen, we have, uh, we're going to now have, go, we're going to go get a drink, and, and, uh, which is probably what we need. Let's have a good round of applause for you.